The Independent in the UK reported that there was a piece of information that went viral on the, on the internet because someone had tweeted out a picture of this fish. And the caption with the fish said this, my friend is staying in a hotel in Belgium. They've offered her the option of renting a fish for the night in case she's lonely. <laughs> I thought, you've got to be kidding me, but no. This has been going on in this hotel for a few years. The guy that uh, runs the hotel said, yeah, we started uh, doing that as a service to uh, the folks in our hotel that uh, feel lonely, and we've been running it now, and it's very popular. We rent a few fish a week in the hotel. <laughs> well, that might be one way of handling loneliness. But how do we handle, in a broader way, how do we handle loneliness? I thought I would just talk for a week on this. I think it's going to take two weeks because it might seem like um, a lesser issue than anger and disappointment and those kinds of things, but I am convinced that it's one of the great, great diseases of the soul that's in our world today. Loneliness. Loneliness is a powerful powerful thing inside of us. I read uh, one thing where a fellow said, well, here's, he said, no Christian should ever be lonely. Never be accused of being lonely. And I understand what they were saying because God's with us, right? And he is, his presence is with us. And so we should never, ever be lonely. But I just think that's really not very helpful counsel or a helpful thing to say. Because I think all of us, at different times and for different reasons and in different situations, experience loneliness. And some of that loneliness goes deep. Some of that loneliness can even be crippling to us. Let me give you a, a, a definition in the, uh, of, of loneliness or just a, uh, a simple kind of way of talking about loneliness out of Insight for Living. It says, loneliness is an experience of isolation resulting from an individual's separation from God or separation from others or displeasure with self. It is accompanied by a lack of inner peace and contentment. There's an uneasy feeling about the way life is going when we feel lonely. Loneliness implies emotional pain, an empty feeling, a yearning to be with someone, a restlessness. From the moment that we enter this life, we are looking for connection. The moment we're born, we are reaching out for connection. Why? Well, Genesis chapter 1 in chapter 2, tell us something about the way that we're wired. In Genesis 1, God speaks and says this in verse 26. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image of God. He created him male and 
female he created them. And then over in chapter 2 of Genesis, in verse 18, we find this one line. The first time that God said anything in his creation was not good. And most of you already know where I'm going with this. He said, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God has always existed in a relationship. Before anything was created, before any of this was here, God existed before all things in a relationship, a loving relationship with Himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are one and they are three in one. They are one and they are a community in their oneness. This is the image of God that we're made in. We are made for loving and relational community with others. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, He wasn't uttering something out of surprise. He, he hadn't hoped that the zebra and the man would get together. He hadn't planned or wondered if maybe the orangutans and the man might uh, get together. When God said it's not good for man to be alone after bringing all of those creatures around him, I just love it when preachers say, and God looked down and he looked at all the animals and he said, huh, there's really not anybody here good enough for Adam. I need to make something new. As if God went, oh man, stupid me, right? No, no. God knew what he was doing all along. God knew when he created Adam that Adam was going to have to exist within a community, within relational love, if he was truly going to live in the image of God. The image of God in him was made for community. God had to provide someone else for him to be in community with. It's not good for man to be alone is not simply an endorsement of marriage. Sometimes when single people hear that verse, they just automatically think, oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're talking about marriage. He's not just talking about marriage there. He's affirming it, yes, but it's not just that. When he says it's not good for man to be alone, it is a commentary on how we are wired internally. We're made to be known and to know others in mutually supportive and loving relationships. Three types of relationships. They're obvious, but let's just say them anyway. Three types of relationships that are vital for us. One is, of course, our relationship with God. Our relationship with God through salvation and abiding in Him. Second, our relationships with others in healthy, interdependent friendships, relationships, marriage, family, all of these relationships important for us to have healthy, interdependent relationships. And then thirdly, is our 
relationship with ourselves. Listen, our relationship with ourselves through being established in grace and acting significantly. Being established in grace and acting significantly. What do I mean by that? Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, and we're going to read into chapter 4. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it's such a wonderful picture of growing up in Christ and maturing in Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 14 uh, with me. Paul is praying and he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who's able to do, I, I, I love that. I think Paul just burst into praise at this moment. <clears throat> He's going to get back to the practicality but he's just busting into praise here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he says, look, here's goal number one, that you be by faith rooted and grounded in the love of God, that you know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, and that you comprehend it by yourself? No. Comprehend with all the saints. That's an important, that's an important little modification there. You will never come to know the depths of the love of God by yourself. You cannot. You cannot know the depths of the love of God by yourself. Can't happen. We comprehend with all the saints the love of God. Now watch what happens in chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now what he says, therefore, I therefore. What's the therefore referring to? The prayer in chapter 3, right? Rooted, grounded in love, comprehending with all of God's people this incredible love of Christ. And then he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all, watch, humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Drop down to verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is that? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. If we have knowledge of the Son of God, what are we growing in knowledge of? His what? His love. What did He just pray? That you may comprehend with all the saints the depth, the height, the breadth, the, the riches of the love of Christ. I want you to be rooted and grounded in that love. And I want you to walk in love. And I want you to mature in understanding that love. So to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, even Christ. That's the goal. The goal for any saint of God, the goal for any Christian is, Lord, I want to, I want to have an ever-deepening understanding of the amazing love. God, you say you are love, and you were love before everything, anything was made. He's always been love. I want to understand that love. I want to understand more and more of the love of Christ. And Lord, I know that in order to do that, I'm going to have to walk with others. I can't comprehend it alone. And so I'm going to become part of a church. I'm going to become part of a church body. I'm, I'm going to get into a small group. I'm going to get connected with some other people. I, I, I'm going to walk with this. I, I want my family to experience this. I want to experience it with others outside of my family. I want, the, I want the kind of friendships and relationships and marriage and family ties, etc., that help me know better your love and give me the opportunity to walk in that love and express that love to others. So, trouble is we're up against something, aren't we? What are we up against? Well, when sin entered the world, so did loneliness. When sin entered the world, so did loneliness. Why? Because sin introduced shame. Sin introduced guilt and blaming others and insecurity and dishonesty. What was meant to be easy and life-giving became risky and often painful. Our sinfulness makes it hard to really enter into the deepest of trusting relationships. Our capacity, our capacity for love and meaning 
has been greatly diminished. Our capacity for love and for meaning has been greatly diminished. Capacity versus need. Now, let me try to help you see this. Adam and Eve were both created with a capacity for enjoying the love of God. They were created with a capacity to experience the love of God, be in fellowship with God, walk with God, and to uh, enjoy that. But sin corrupted that capacity. And so what became a capacity to enjoy love became a need for acceptance and for security. What had been a capacity changed to a desperate need for security and for acceptance. Adam and Eve were created with a capacity for experiencing a meaningful and purposeful life. They had been given a job. They had been given a purpose. And they were, had the capacity to enter into that and to enjoy that and to live out that purpose in their lives. But what happened? Sin corrupted that capacity. And so it began to be experienced as a need for significance. The capacity to enjoy love. The capacity to be totally secure. The capacity to have and enjoy meaning and purpose corrupted by sin and turned rather into needs for significance needs for security and acceptance. Let me tell you, I'm, I'm deeply indebted to Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, who years and years ago wrote a book called The Marriage Builder. It's one of the best books I've ever read on the subject. And, and he said something in that book. If you've been around me, you might have heard me say this very thing. I, I try to always attribute to him. Um, but I've been saying it for so many years, I don't always remember to, um, to do that. Somebody said that if you say something long enough, it becomes your own. So I, I but I can't lay claim. I can't lay claim. I have to acknowledge him. So let me just, let me give you Larry's definition of two words here. The word security and the word significance. Security and significance. And these, these notes are in the thing somewhere. I think the cards got exchanged somewhere. Uh, they're in there, and, and I'll make sure that they're published this afternoon so you can get these if you want. But, but he defines security this way. Security is a convinced awareness of being unconditionally and totally loved without needing to change in order to win love. Loved by a love that is freely given, that cannot be earned, and therefore cannot be lost. That's security. Significance, he defines this way, a realization that I am engaged in a responsibility or job that is truly important, whose results will not evaporate with time, but will last through eternity, that fundamentally involves having a meaningful impact on another person, a job for which I am completely adequate. These are two essential 
needs of every human being. The security of knowing that I'm loved. Not a love that I win, not a love that I earn, a love that is freely given to me. And the other need is the need for significance, to know that I make a difference, to know that my life matters, that, I, that I'm doing something that impacts others in a way that makes a profound difference in their lives. You know, I try to love my wife unconditionally. I say I tried to because I don't. Oh, I, I get in that stream and I try to love her unconditionally. And, and I try to make her feel significant in what she does and the ways that she makes my life better and I'm encouraged by and feel loved by and take, you know all the things that she does for me. And she works hard to make me feel accepted and loved and to make me feel significant. But see, there's a problem. And that problem is that there is no human being on this planet that can satisfy completely and wholly and truly your need for security and significance. The fact of the matter is, is that I will never be enough for her by myself. And as much as I would love to tell you that she is, she will never be enough by herself for me. Because sin has corrupted the way that we relate to one another. Sin has damaged our capacity and it has, and it has skewed our sense of need. And when we come looking, and this happens, listen, this is, you want to know why 50% of marriages end in divorce? I'll tell you why. Because a man comes to the marriage saying, I want to be significant. And I'm going to be significant because I'm going to lead and you're going to follow. And I'm going to have great ideas and you're going to tell me they're great ideas. And, and, and I'm going to be in charge and I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to have a family and raise children and make my mark and leave a legacy and I am going to be significant. What does a wife come to the marriage for? Security. For security. There's nothing bad about that. It's part of how we're wired to be safe, to be cared for, to be protected, to be loved. And so this man comes to this marriage, or let's take it out of marriage, just make it a friendship, because I, I, I don't want this to not land in the hearts of those of you who aren't married. Just a friendship. You, you come to that friendship, I, I'm going to do stuff because I want you to make me feel significant. Oh, yeah, and I'm going to be a friend to you because I want to feel secure. I need to feel like someone loves me and accepts me. Our capacity is damaged 
and we ultimately, I'll just bring it right back down to my person. I will tell you that I regularly frustrate my wife. I regularly disappoint my wife. I mean, it's just once a year, but I regularly, (laughs) regularly disappoint my wife. No way around it. And if she is looking to me alone for security, if you're looking to a friend alone for security, if you're looking to your children or your parents alone for security, it's a dead end. If you're looking at them for significance, alone, it's a dead end. Here's the cycles we get into, and we're going to stop right at the end of this here, okay? And we'll continue next week. There's three dangerous cycles that we get into. And one is the kind of the main cycle. The other two spring off of it. Let me just try and describe these quickly so we don't get too far over time. The first is what Insight for Living Folks called the cycle of unrealistic expectations. The cycle of unrealistic expectations. People who are often uh, chronically lonely find it difficult to have meaningful and healthy relationships because we refuse to accept some of the basic facts of life, that nobody can be everything for you. And we don't want to believe that. We have some idea that there's an ideal out there. There's the ideal woman, there's the ideal man, there's the ideal friend, parent, child, boss, whatever. There's some ideal out there. We just have to find the ideal and we cling to that thought that that ideal exists, and what happens then is that desire causes us to distort what is real. We distort it, and we become disappointed when our dreams fail to come true. And so, what do we do? We place tremendous demands on our relationships. We place tremendous pressure on one another because we insist that you've got to live up to this idea in my head of who you're to be. That's one cycle, treadmill, that we get on. And, we, and then when a relationship falls apart, what do we do? We just go looking for it all over again, and that cycle commences. But here's two cycles quickly that go off of, of that main one. The first one is this, and that is the cycle of excessive dependence. The cycle of excessive dependence. Overly dependent people tend to do this. They they discount their own ability to take responsibility for their lives. They discount that. And instead, what do they do? They look and expect others to fulfill their needs for them. Because certainly I can't, but you can. And so what happens? They begin to put demands on that relationship. Demands on whom they depend. And what happens? It causes other people to do what? To run away. (laughs) To retreat. How many of you have run away? Just be honest. How many of you have run away from a needy person before in your life? Sure, sure. It's just, I mean, it's just, you, you feel smothered. You feel unable to cope. 
because they're making such demands. And that person finds themselves again back at square one, back at square one. And it usually continues, that cycle. The final cycle is this, the cycle of angry alienation. The cycle of angry alienation. See, sometimes loneliness doesn't always look like withdrawal. Sometimes loneliness doesn't look like just sad. Sometimes loneliness sees red and gets angry and lashes out at the person or persons who are not living up to that ideal, not meeting the needs that they have. And as they lose relationships with people, they, what do they do? They, they compensate for that. They don't withdraw. They just start lashing out. They're angry for feeling isolated, and they want other people to know it because they are responsible. And eventually, that criticism of others and that anger to others just leads to the isolation that, that they um, are experiencing or will continue to experience sometimes for the rest of their lives. So next week, we'll talk a little bit about some ways of dealing with that loneliness. Maybe, maybe you've identified yourself this morning some way. Person who needs security. Person who needs significance. And you are depending wholly on another or a few others to meet that need in your life. You don't take that need to God regularly. You don't take that need to Him and say, God, you are my all in all. You are the one. You're the treasure that I seek. When I fall down, you lift me up. When I am dry, you fill my cup. You are my all in all. When we begin to orient ourselves that way, we become able to be free because we know that we are entirely significant to God and entirely secure in His love. And we're able to risk loving others without fear. Or we're able to risk relationships without anger. Or we're able to risk relationships without dependency because we're anchored in the love of God the love that we cannot lose, and the significance which says that all that I bring to Him matters. It always matters. You ever had something you've done, ignored by others? You know that feeling? You were so excited about doing it for them, and then they let you down. They didn't respond right. They didn't say it right. They didn't have the excitement you'd hoped for. Ever had that happen? And all of a sudden, what happens to you? Boom. Anger, frustration, insecurity, insignificant. But when we're rooted in the love of God, now, now, 
understand, I'm not saying that we are not, we're, we are supposed to provide this experience for each other. We'll get to that next week. But look, here's the first and foremost thing. We have to be anchored in his love. We have to be looking to him first for our security and for our significance. We come to this table each week. We come to this table and it says something to us. It tells us something about our security. Why? Because every Sunday we renew in our own hearts this wonderful covenant of love. We renew it. He doesn't have to. But we come again and again renewing our commitment, renewing our relationship, renewing our love for the Father, knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we're loved, knowing that every time we come, 52 weeks a year, year after year after year after year after year after year, He never changes. His faithfulness endures forever. His loving kindness endures forever. And this bread and this cup are here to remind you of that. You are secure in His love. It will never fail you. It will never stop. It is never conditional. His love never fails. And this also tells you something about your significance and your purpose. Look at what he was willing to do, the lengths that he went to in order to win your salvation, to capture your heart. Listen to the words of Jesus with the disciples. Oh, how I have longed to eat this meal with you. Let me tell you something. Jesus is saying that to your heart every Sunday. Oh, Welcome, Mike, welcome. I've been longing to eat this meal with you. Aaron, I've been longing to eat this meal. Jesus is saying that to you, to every one of us. Hear the passion in his voice. Hear his heart. And then what does he say? For I will not eat of it or drink of it again with you until I drink of it with you in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, you're part of what he's doing. You're part of his plan. Your life has significance. It has meaning. It has purpose. This table reminds us every week. On the night that our Lord Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, take and eat this, all of you, in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Drink this, all of you, in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. The gift of security. The gift of significance.
hearts. Come and feed upon him by faith in your hearts with thanksgiving and be glad. In Jesus' name, amen.